All right, I've got some helpers who are going to hand out some handouts. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. It is good to be together. I hope you all are doing well. hope you enjoyed both weeks of spring that we got this year. Um, it quickly turned warm in a hurry. Um, so we are in the, uh, the book of Luke. And we're going to pick up with the, uh, the next passage after where um, our pastor left off there in Luke 17. This is, a, uh, this is a beautiful passage. It's, um, there's a lot neat about this passage. But one of the things is uh, this is the only one of the Gospels. So this is the only place in all the scripture we actually get this recorded which is kind of interesting because um, usually you're saying that if you're in the book of John. So Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, they are what we would call synoptics. And that's because they pretty much are synonymous in the sense that they record most of the same events, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Uh, but John is a little bit different. But this is one that is only in Luke. Um, and uh and it may or may not be familiar to you, but I have to tell you, I have fallen in love with this passage this week. It is beautiful, um, and it is really, it's really convicting, um, that's for sure. If you did not get a handout, anybody, don't, don't be bashful to raise your hand if you didn't. Okay, we got one over there. Salem, Miss Fran didn't get one. Um, don't take it personally, Miss Fran. Um, so, um, all right. Uh, well, let me read for us out of Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and we'll dive in together. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. And lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well or has saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the incredible privilege of the scriptures. You did not have to give us such a clear representation of your word. It's almost unbelievable that we have your very words written down. But to get a glimpse from you of exactly what happened when the Son of God walked the earth, what a treat. So, Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would work through your word this morning to your people. Pray for that. Father, every one of us, 
We have been recipients of your mercy, your mercies in so many ways we could never begin to count them. But I know in a room with this many people, there's some of us who have never bowed down and asked for help to be utterly changed and to follow Christ. We've enjoyed your mercies, but may not have actually bowed and asked for help to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, by your spirit, you would presume to open eyes this morning to accept the grace of God. And Father, for many of us that have encountered Jesus Christ as Lord, bow down and realize we need a Savior. Remind us of the deep gratitude that should follow us every day. Father, remind us of how thankful our hearts should be. I pray that you would do this work among your people, Father. We ask this to you through the strong name of Jesus, our Lord, that your spirit who gave us his word would attend his word now. Amen. Well, um, we're not going to do anything fancy at all this morning except walk right through this text because I don't want to lose a bit of it. It's beautiful. So uh, I've broken it up into five scenes. Um, and there, I've got the verses there for you of what they are, but we're just going to walk right through. It's a narrative, so it's very easy to do that. Verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So in verse 11, we see that Jesus is on his way to where? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is the capital city. But we are told that he is passing through where? Samaria. Now, if you look on the map that I gave you on your handout, you're going to see that there's a square at the top. That's Galilee. That's kind of the region where Jesus grew up. That would be where Nazareth is. And then you're going to see a square at the bottom. That's going to be Judea. That's the name of the region. The city in Judea would be uh, Jerusalem, the capital city in that region. And then in the middle, you're going to see that there is Samaria. Now, the most direct route to go from Jerusalem to Galilee would be go through Samaria. But if you're a Jew, you do not go that route. You take the very circuitous route and you go around as shown on the map, not Jesus. And we'll see that. Why did the Samaritans want to do that? Well, uh, there were some old wounds that had never healed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Basically, when the Jews got carted off to Assyria or by the Assyrians uh, in the exile, the very first exile, the Assyrians sent some folks to come back down into the region, into that area that is now Samaria, and they took their homes. The Jews had left. There was home, their homes empty, land empty. They came in and moved in. I don't know how happy you'd be about that. I'd be pretty frustrated, right? The Jews were frustrated, but it got worse. Over time, the foreigners intermarried with the Jews. Well, you've read the Old Testament. You know that's not a good thing. And so in terms of the Jews, they doubly despise the Samaritans for being thieves and carpetbaggers and then for not keeping uh, the Jewish people pure. Suffice it to say, there was no small disagreement between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. So you can imagine that Jesus kind of caused a stir when he inaugurated his ministry in the heart of Samaria and gained his first followers recorded in John chapter 4 too, a Samaritan uh -oh, woman. 
Keep all that in mind. This is all background for this passage. So now you've got a reference for location. It's really important to understand the timing of when this happens in the ministry of Jesus. So when I think of the ministry of Jesus, I have found it easy to divide the ministry of Jesus into like a four-year college calendar, if you will. It basically falls that way. So his ministry begins in late fall. You call it the fall of his freshman year of uh, 26. And then in the spring of his freshman year, uh, so, the, so what is he doing in the fall? Well, that's the baptism. That's being driven out in the wilderness, all of that. That's the fall. Then the spring of his freshman year, that's where he is in his Judean ministry, much recorded by John. We get the first ministry at Cana. That's when he meets Nicodemus in the night. Uh, and that's his first trip to Jerusalem. It is on his return from that trip to Jerusalem back to Galilee that he goes through Samaria. And that's when he meets the Samaritan woman in John 4. Now, by the fall of 27, which would now be like his sophomore year, if you will, Jesus has started his Galilean ministry off with a bang by getting himself kicked out of the synagogue in Nazareth and almost run off a cliff as he was teaching uh, there in his home synagogue. And it's then that he called his first disciples. So he continues his Galilean ministry throughout the remainder of his sophomore year on in and throughout his junior year. Year, recording some of the great hits, Sermon on the Mount, Walking on Water, Feeding the 5,000, Calming the Storm. It's in the spring of his junior year that uh, his ministry reaches a climax. So think about that. Spring of his junior year is going to be dead by the spring of his senior year, be on the cross by the, dead, by the spring of his senior year. Everything reaches a climax in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, when is that? Everything, you get this, you get the Gospels. It all happens when Peter confesses him as the Messiah. All of them are driving for that. Almost none of the events are recorded in all four Gospels, save the, uh, the resurrection. But this is recorded in all four, and that is the, uh, the confession of, Jesus, of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. That's when it reached its actual peak, but publicly... It actually didn't reach its peak until a few months later. It would be like you could consider the winter of his senior year, months away from when he's going to go to the cross. He raises a guy by the name of Lazarus from a tomb. And folks, you should have just sent off fireworks. It took everything to boilerplate levels. At this point, his fame had reached crazy amounts of heights. And at this point, the religious leaders wanted him dead, and he couldn't be dead as far as they were concerned soon enough. It is right after that that we get this event right here. So things are at a fever pitch. Sure, Jesus, you got to know that you're not going to walk yourself right through Samaria. People hate you enough already. Verse 11 tells us, where does he go? Around? And no, he goes right through. So on his final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, final journey because he'll hit the cross much uh, in just a few months, he goes through Samaria, scene two, verse 12. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. They, they were saying, Jesus, Master, 
have mercy on us. So given the environment, it's no wonder that as soon as Jesus got to the edge of this village, they draws notice. He's immediately met by 10 very desperate lepers. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching on Psalm 103, and we actually talked about leprosy when we talked about that. It, it is a disease that was very prevalent in that time. It's a disease that is actually still around today. It's a disease that attacks the nervous system. It begins to deaden the nerves uh, in, in the, the nerve endings in the victim, seemingly leaving them unable to feel, especially unable to feel pain. Victims of leprosy end up losing uh, their uh, limbs and they begin to lose digits, sometimes because the disease has literally eaten its way from the inside out, other times because the limbs rot away or even eaten by animals when they cannot feel it. It's a horrible disease. And not only is it incredibly debilitating, but is incredibly socially isolating. Why? Well, because it happens to be a contagious disease. And so given this, lepers were quickly identified and they were sent out of the rest of the population. Can you imagine having a loved one get diagnosed with this horrible disease where they were going to need help like they'd never need help before? And you have to take your loved one, your husband or your wife, your son or your daughter, your mother or your father, and tell them, go outside and we can't be near you anymore. I hope the best for you. I cannot imagine. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I believe leprosy is a physical condition that gives us a visible picture of the dangerous and deadly nature of sin. Unlike leprosy, which today actually inflicts very uh, infects very few people and actually can be healed with just an antibiotic. Sin, the disease of sin, enjoys universal reach and no one is beyond its scope. It has infected everyone on the planet. Sin eats at the very nerve center, not of the body, but of the soul. It prevents us from properly distinguishing helpful and healthy things for our soul and it opposes that which is good and often enjoys that which is harmful for us. So here Jesus arrives on the scene and he's greeted by 10 very desperate individuals. We now understand why. In verse 13, Luke records their desperate cry. Here it is, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The 10... They called Jesus master. This is the only instance in all of Scripture where anyone outside of one of Jesus' disciples calls him master. In fact, it's not just a term enjoyed by the disciples. It's almost exclusively used by two in the innermost, Peter and John. So what can we glean from this? I believe we can see that these are not just gawkers or interested parties. These are 10 men who believed that they, what they heard about Jesus, they believed the reports that Jesus had massively changed the lives of thousands in the broader area. They believed the news reports that not only could he, but he had raised the dead. 
It is this deep belief that led these men to call out to him as master, imploring them to show him mercy. So these are 10 believe or 10 individuals who believed in Jesus. Please, 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 please keep that in mind. It's very important to the way to the passage. Scene three. As I held up two fingers, scene three. When he when he saw them, I said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went. They were cleansed. So as soon as Jesus saw them, he spoke and his words were powerful enough to hear them. This actually points to another level of the mercy of Jesus. You might recall when we were looking at Psalm 103, we turned for a moment and looked at the account of Jesus and another leper. It's the only other one recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 8. And you remember in that account, we talked about how Jesus, how he, cleaned, how he healed the leper. He healed him by doing what? He touched him. And we talked about how that indicates the level of mercy of Jesus because lepers were supposed to be untouchable. Well, now I hope we see how much more this indicates to us how merciful Jesus was and intentional Jesus was in touching that leper. If the man can heal 10 with a word, then surely he could heal one and not have to touch him. He touched him because he wanted this man who had felt the debilitating effects of sin. That is the disease of leprosy. He wanted that man to feel the touch of his creator, the mercy of Jesus. It has no bounds. Jesus instructs them to go show themselves to the priest. Why? Because the Old Testament demanded it. I'm not going to look all into it. I gave you Leviticus 13 in the key section there in your handout, 13 and 14. Here's the key. God was vigilant to protect his people from leprosy by laying out stringent rules about cleanliness. So if someone had leprosy and they thought that they had gotten better, they couldn't just reintroduce themselves to the rest of the uh, the folks. Instead, they had to show themselves to a priest. The priest had to use discernment and make a decision if indeed they had been clean. Why? Because God cared about his people. So Jesus was telling them, go follow the next logical step in being restored to the community, to your families, to your lives, and go to the priest. Now, if you're not careful, there is something critical in what Jesus says. It is so easy to miss. It's got to do with logical priority. What we would expect is for Jesus, and we almost hear this accidentally, but it's not there. This is what we think we hear Jesus saying. We hear him say something like, be healed, and now go you show yourselves to the priest. But I emphasize, that's not how the text is recorded. And it's intentional because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus first tells them to go show themselves to the priest. Then there's your logical priority. Then we are told it's in the way it's written is very emphatic. As they went, they were cleansed. So he tells them to act as if they have been clean before they are actually what? Cleaned. They were healed after they started on their way to show their priests that they had been clean. Okay, so what? Again, the text is emphatic 
to show us these are not mere fans of Jesus. These were folks who believed in Jesus and not just his words. Wouldn't the most logical thing to do from any skeptic at that moment, as soon as Jesus tells you, well, go show yourselves to the priests, what would the next thing you should say back? Well, okay, but I need to be cleansed. That's not what these believers did. They already had faith that if the man said it, it would happen. And so what did they do? They went, and as they went, they were clean, cleansed. Whatever conclusions you draw about these 10 lepers, it cannot be that they did not really believe in Jesus. These individuals believed in Jesus. And the text is so careful to have us see that. Scene four, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, and this is where things we're going to have to dive in here. It's so good. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. Now he was a Samaritan. So as you look at scene four of the drama, it takes a very interesting turn. Here we are told that one of the ten, upon recognizing the healing, turns back and then he returns to Jesus. He doesn't just return, but he praises God and not just praises God. The text tells us how with a loud voice. Well, that's interesting for a few reasons. First of all, this man has leprosy. He doesn't talk in a loud voice. One of the first places that leprosy attacks in the body is the larynx. And so most lepers could barely get out whispers. And now this man is speaking with a loud voice. What is Luke trying to tell us? Remember Luke? His occupation before writing the book of Luke was what? He was a physician. He's pointing out to us the man has certainly been healed if he's talking with a loud voice. Secondly, it says he praised God. But wait, now wait a second. Who brought God into this exchange? God hasn't been mentioned yet. For all intents and purposes, this exchange could be a purely medical encounter. I mean, outside of the oddity of the physician immediately healing you, uh, healing the patient with his voice. But this man refuses to let this be purely clinical. He moves this to become theological in a hurry. All of a sudden, this encounter is not just between this man and Dr. Jesus. This encounter is between this man and God. Huge point. Huge point. The man connected the healing with the power of God. He recognized that the man who healed him speaks on behalf of God. He recognized that Jesus is at least a prophet of God. Please keep that in mind. Now recognize something else in the account. It doesn't sound like the man ever made his way to the priest. Before he came back to Jesus, the wording indicates that the moment he saw that he was healed, he what? He turned around. So here's a man kneeling before Jesus before he made it to the priest. Now, in a moment, we're going to consider Jesus's response. Let me just tell you this. He never rebukes the man for disobeying and not going to the priest. And I submit to you, it's because in returning to Jesus, this man had obeyed the command of Jesus. I submit to you. That in returning to Jesus, this man had not just gone to a priest, but as the author of Hebrews puts it, this man has come to the high priest. 
And it sure appears that this man believes that Jesus is not just a priest. Look across the pages of Scripture. Please, play this game. Come back and tell me any time where people bow down to priests. And the Bible doesn't take kindly to leaders allowing people to bow down to them like they're God. There's actually some really funny moments in the Bible. There's uh, in Acts chapter 10, I put that there for you. There's Cornelius. Um, uh, Cornelius, Peter walks in. Peter had grown a pretty good reputation by that time. Peter walks in. Cornelius bounds down. And Peter just can't get him up fast enough. Like, would you stop? You're going to get us both killed. Or there's the time in Revelation chapter 22 when John is trying to uh, is so overcome with it. He's standing in his vision before the angels and he said, now bow down before the angel. And what does the angel say? Hey, get up. I'm not God. Just worship God only. Don't worship me. Or there's Acts chapter 12. I guess it's like a counterexample. You remember when Herod's standing out there on the porch and all the people began to worship him and he doesn't stop them? Yeah, that was his last day on planet Earth. He was eaten by worms and died. Well, here is this man bowed before Jesus like he's God and Jesus doesn't even begin to stop the man because the man has done nothing wrong. Because Jesus is what? He is God. Next, I want you to see the attitude of the man. I'm just going to go ahead and get this over with. It's what preachers love, things like this. His attitude is gratitude. All right, there you go. You can't forget that. The man was incredibly thankful to Jesus. He carried a debt of gratitude, not the sort of debt that you repay, but the sort of debt that shapes you. All right. Here we go. Scene five. It's going to come together. Verse 17, Jesus answered. Sorry, right before scene five, the last part of that in verse 16, it says, and the man was a Samaritan. <laughs> it is no small detail at all. It's massive. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered. We're not. Ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this yeah, foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. Jesus doesn't tell the man to get up. He's happy to accept his worship. Jesus asked the man where the other ones were, why he was the only one to return. I love the sarcasm here. Were they not healed? Oh, maybe something happened on the way. Maybe my words didn't actually heal them. It's just pure sarcasm. Of course they were healed. Then he goes further and he tells the man that his faith has made you well. Now in the ESV, it translates that as made you well. I'm so thankful that they put a note there, though, that it could also be translated has saved you. And I think it should be translated that way. The word is actually the Greek verb sozo. Sozo is the word that we use all across the scriptures for saved and has its noun form for salvation. He's saying your faith has saved you. So Jesus makes a distinction. This is it right here. He makes a distinction between the healing the man received that was like the healing of the other nine, being healed from leprosy, and the healing that the man received 
after encountering Jesus being healed from that which separates him from God, namely his sin. So there were 10 healed. There was one saved from his sin. What is going on? Well, there are hints all across for us to see it. I think this is great. So when we see that this man, he wasn't just a Jew, but he was what? What does Jesus call him? Foreigner. He was a Samaritan. The text makes sure that we see this point in three different ways. Number one, it happens in Samaria. Number two, it reminds us that he's a Samaritan. Number three, Jesus makes sure we know this by calling him a foreigner. So this is for a very concise passage. They want us to get this point. So let's think together. Put on your Bible trivia cap and come up with a scenario where you get a foreigner who's infected with leprosy, who experiences the cleansing of God and returns with gratitude. You actually don't even have to guess. Jesus has already put it on our roadmap way back in Luke 4. Remember we started and I said, well, how, what's one of the very first things that, well, it is the very first thing that happened in his ministry, in the Galilean ministry. He got kicked out of the synagogue and they didn't just kick him out. They tried to kill him. They tried to run him off a cliff. What in the world do you say to get your church to try to kill you? Like, I can see some of you all being upset sometimes. But seriously, trying to kill us? Well, here it is. You want to know what he said? Here you go. Right here. Luke chapter 28 is when they try to kill him. 27 is what provoked it. Here we go. Here's the provocation. It's okay. Children can even hear this. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28. Here's the response. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. <laughs> and then we go on and find out they try to run them off a cliff. So what is Jesus talking about? Why did they get so upset? Well, it's the exact story that we walk through in our responsive reading. It occurs right after the height of the kingdom during Solomon, and there were kings. But during that time, when the nation was in decline, hits its peak and Solomon declines after that, you get some of the coolest and weirdest stories. Because you've got these kings that aren't usually very good, and then you've got these prophets that God is talking to, and it's to them that the weird, cool stories happen. Uh, so the prophets represented God because the kings could not. That's why they needed this role of these prophets. All right. So in this story, there's a Syrian army general named Naaman. Naaman's really powerful. Naaman has a slave girl. Naaman captured the slave girl from Israel on one of his raids. Naaman is powerful, but Naaman is infected with you, you nailed it. What? Leprosy. The slave girl has compassion on him and tells him that there is a prophet in Israel who can cure him of leprosy. You got it? Slave girl turns to her master who carted her off from her family and says, hey, I wish he was in, uh, in uh, what could be. Actually, this is great. Don't have time to make this connection. Go back and read 2 Kings 5 yourself. You'll see it. They're in Samaria at the time. Ah! Anyway, 
That's just cool. So he says, I wish he was there where, uh, where he could be cured. All right. So Naaman, powerful as he is, he goes to the king of Syria, and this is what he says. This is great. He's, he says, listen, I hear that the king, I hear that if I were in Israel, I could be cured of lepers. So this is the funny part. The king of Syria turns around and writes a letter thinking, well, if anybody can cure him in all of Israel, who must it be? The king. I mean, he's the king. Surely all kings are as powerful as me. So he sends a letter to the king of Israel. He's got the wrong person. So Naaman takes a whole brigade down. They land at the king's doorstep and they hand this letter. And they say, hey, this is king of Syria. Hey, this is Naaman. He's one of my top guys. Can you please cure him of leprosy? The king gets the letter. This is hysterical. He gets the letter and this grown man king sits down and cries. He starts tearing his clothes. He says, I'm through. They're going to wipe me out. I can't. And this is exact language. What am I? Am I God that I can heal people from leprosy? It's great. They, so what happened? You got what happened, right? They got the wrong person. Of course, this prophet he, I mean, this king can't heal. You need a prophet to heal. Kings don't heal. Prophets do. So finally, Elijah, who is actually the one the slave girl is talking about, he catches wind of this and he just says, look, would you quit your belly aching? Get up. You look horrible. Get up. Tell the guy to come down here. The guy comes down there. Won't go through it all. But long story short, dips himself in the Jordan seven times and he is what? He's healed. So you got a leper, a foreigner, he's healed. And then the story takes a lot of attention to show us how much gratitude he has. All right, with that in mind, listen to the words in the synagogue. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Well, what's the point? His point is that God chose to heal a foreign leper who kidnapped one of the daughters of Israel, who had threatened the king of Israel, all the while choosing not to heal many lepers in Israel. Point. The very first thing he says at the top of his ministry, God gets him killed. He basically looks at the congregation and says, I just want you all to get this straight. You're going to reject me. And if you reject me, that's okay. God will bring healing to even foreigners. Praise God, that's us. We're the Gentiles who are grafted in. That's it. So now you hopefully you see why the timing is important. Jesus begins his ministry forecasting that the Jews will see all of his power, all of his might, all of the miracles. And he tells them that they will reject it. And that instead, God will heal a foreign leper and make a worshiper of God out of the healed man. That's how he starts his ministry. Now, in the closing scene of his ministry, he's at the very end of this thing. How does he end it? He stands in the heart of Samaria, situated between two areas, filled with Jews, Galilee up here, Judea down here. All of them have seen the signs and wonders. All of them have rejected Jesus. So now he stands, he heals 10 lepers, nine of them were Jews. 
and the Jews do not return. They're on their way to their priest. And then one, foreign, he returns and he asks to be saved. It's complete fulfillment of what Jesus had already said would happen. This leper recognized that in Jesus, he had found a prophet. He had found his priest. And now he had found his king. As we close with application, all of it's going to be focused on something I once heard the late R.C. Sproul say. Many times I can still hear his raspy voice saying it. He often said that the two primal sins of all are number one, refusal to honor God as God, and number two, ingratitude, failing to be grateful for the abundant mercy of God. Last week we considered Psalm 19, how the entire world is guilty before God. Why are they guilty before God? Because all have seen the power and wonder of God and refuse to honor him as God and refuse to be grateful for his mercy. In our world today, just consider this. Millions experience the merciful healing of God when they encounter the amazing wonder of modern medicine. Modern medicine is not a testimony to man's wisdom. That's the way we're taught it. That's false. It's a statement of God's mercy. Think about this that is just normal to us. People who should be blind can see. Consider the number of people who are served by glasses or contacts. You should be blind. People who should be deaf can hear. Just consider those served by hearing aids. People who should, for all intents and purposes, be lame. They can walk. Consider the number of people with successful outcomes for knee surgery, foot surgery, hip surgery, back surgery. Consider the number of people served by open heart surgery, brain surgery, transplants, nuclear medicine. And the list goes on. Just take this fact alone. Consider the fact that about a third of us, one out of every three of us, would not even be here if modern medicine had not figured out the idea of a germ and told the physicians to start washing their hands, massively reducing the amount of folks who die in childbirth by over uh, a third. God has shown us unbelievable mercy. And still so often, those who are the direct recipients of his mercy fail to acknowledge even the slightest contribution of God. So often we fail to show him gratitude and praise him for all that he so richly deserves. One of the most dangerous temptations is the temptation to enjoy the benefits of God without enjoying the salvation of God. Let me say it again. It's one of the most dangerous temptations the temptation to enjoy the benefits of God without enjoying the salvation of God. Our greatest need cannot be tracked by a bank statement. You can't find it out by any panel of lab results. There's no MRI that can reveal it, and there's no Facebook profile or timeline that can display it. 
Our greatest need is that we fall before the God of the universe and recognize we need salvation. One of the most startling things about the passage is the sincere faith of the other nine. It has tripped me up. And it's not as if you look at the passage and it's a throwaway. It is so key to how the passage is written. They really believed in Jesus. And yet as soon as they got healing, they got what they thought they needed. They turned and they walked away. Yes, it's certainly a picture of the, how the Jewish people responded to Jesus. But it is a sincere warning to each of us. There is a faith in Jesus that will heal you and not save you. There is a way to believe in Jesus that will help your temporary condition, but it will not solve your eternal problem. Just because we turn to Jesus and he helps us through a rough spot doesn't mean that we have saving faith in Jesus. The nine lepers called a master. They really believed that he could heal. They went even before they saw healing. But as soon as they got through their rough spot, as soon as they were healed, they were done with Jesus. Saving faith can be no more done with Jesus than a human could ever be done with oxygen. The one who turned away after seeing the healing, he realized he had found someone that could solve the problem of his soul. And he found Jesus. If you are here and there is a survey taken and they say, do you believe in Jesus? And you think you're good because you can say yes. Please. You should lay on the bed tonight with your pillow, my head on the pillow. Would you think of those other nine? They definitely believed in Jesus. And they walked away from salvation. Finally, let's recognize the supreme importance of gratitude. It's the main impetus of worship. Let's be warned of the temptation to treat God as if he owes us something. Oh, golly. So easy, isn't it? How quick do we turn to the sky and blame God? The one who's been so merciful. It's the grace of God that he doesn't give us the very thing we deserve. Gratitude is rooted in a sincere understanding of God and a sincere understanding of his goodness. It's actually why we come every week. We actually repeat every single week what this leper did before Jesus. We come, we recognize our healing, we bow before Jesus, and we call out for salvation. I got to tell you, the lack of gratitude seen in my life on a daily basis, it's staggering, especially given the amounts of mercy I've received. So I pray. I pray that God will renew on a regular basis the realization that I, that we, have been shown divine favor. I have no room for complaint. There is zero room for frustration. God has been infinitely good to my soul.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It is so important. It's also very scary. I pray, Father, you would help us to see that we have all received mercy from God. But have we turned to him and recognized we need him to save us from the problem of sin? Have we turned to him and asked him to be to us like oxygen, needed every moment of every day? Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you didn't just have your son walk the earth, but you attended it by your spirit through a word, through the scriptures that explained to us what was happening, what it means, and is a clear warning to each of us. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for your kindness in giving it to us. And I pray by your spirit, you would bring us to our knees before our King. In your name we pray. Amen.